The following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. Well, last week we dealt with a very difficult passage. Uh, it's a difficult passage to work through and a great week for me to take the week off and gave that to somebody else. And I thought I was getting away with something and yet today we find ourselves again Continuing in this theme of just difficult passages, 1 John's a difficult book to get our, our mind around. There's some very black and white things that are mentioned, some very difficult things to, to think about as we, as we really digest and dig into them. If you're a recent guest with us, a couple weeks ago, we, I really left off uh, talking about uh, the love of God and how the love of God transforms our relationships. And I said that was going to be the first part of three parts uh, in the love of God. And so today we talk about uh, part number two, everyday Jesus for everyday generosity, and how this love is expressed in generosity. Verse 11, as we started, says, This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. There's an obsession, I think, with new things. We see that in today's culture, and there definitely was in John's culture as he's writing a long time ago, an obsession with new things. Uh, we're excited about new things. We give new gifts to our new visitors because you're new and exciting and we love you and we're glad you're here. And, and if you're not new, you've been here a while, then it's like, well, we're glad you're here, but no gift for you. But new is awesome. Uh, consider the iPad when it first came out in 2010, the iPad 1. And then in 2011, the iPad 2 came out. And then everybody was anticipating the iPad 3. And when it came out, they didn't call it the iPad 3, did they? They called it what? The new iPad. So that was the official name. And the quarter that the new iPad was released after, released after two had already been released, uh, they sold 17 million iPads. It was the biggest sales uh, in Apple history in a four-month period because it was the new one. And there's an obsession with new. New is awesome. People all around John at this time of his writing were obsessed with new not much different than they are today. They were looking for that new religion, the, the new thing to think about. Jesus is old. We've heard about him already. What's new? What's trendy? What's hot? What's on the market today? What can we grab onto? I want to hear something new. And John says, I'm here to tell you something old, something that God is, has created, all that there is, everything visible and invisible. He's revealed to, to us himself in the person of Jesus Christ I'm not going to give you new stuff, but remind you of the old stuff that is just as relevant, just as powerful, just as meaningful and transformational as it was the first day you heard it. It's been 25 years, actually, this month since uh, author and poet Robert Fulgham published his book, his New York Times bestselling book, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Maybe you're at least familiar with that title. Maybe you haven't read the book, but you're familiar with the phrase. And even you can probably imagine what the book is about by just thinking about that phrase. And these statements, as he writes through his book, they're not meant to be humorous. It's not meant to be funny. In fact, he started out every spring writing down all the things that he had learned in that year about the meaning of life, about what makes a, a man happy and fulfilled, and and every year, his journaling got shorter and shorter and shorter. And as he grew in life, he realized that he was basically just relearning all the same stuff all over again. He wasn't learning much, new, many new things, and he realized that 
everything that was meaningful, everything he needed to know in life, he had already known. He wasn't inventing anything new. He just needed to apply what had already been known. Here are some of the things that he learned. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. Warm (laughs) cookies and cold milk are good for you. Watch out for traffic. Hold hands and stick together. Goldfish and hamsters and white mice and even the little seed in the styrofoam cup, they all die. So do we. John wants to remind us in this passage that love is not new. The concept of love for one another is not this hot, new, trendy thing. And specifically, sacrificial love, self-sacrificial love, this generous love is seen most in God and in the person of Jesus Christ. And there's three things about generosity, this form of love, this this form that love takes in our passage, generosity, that I want to look through this morning. Generosity, the first one is generosity gives evidence of a regenerated heart. Second, generosity shares in the heroism of Christ. And lastly, generosity gives us confidence of answered prayers. John talks about all of these. And so let's work through these together. First, generosity gives evidence of a regenerated heart. Generosity is a a thermometer. It's an indicator of our spiritual health. It can be a great thermometer of our spiritual health. It doesn't lead to spiritual health. Likewise, uh, the mercury doesn't when the mercury rises in a thermometer, it, it shows us how hot it is. And likewise, generosity can be a thermometer for our spiritual health. It indicates the maturity of our walk with God. I recently heard a comedian say something about money. He says, getting rich doesn't make you rude. He says, you were rude before you were rich, and now you just have opportunity to be rich. Money reveals what is already in our heart. It just gives us opportunity to live that out. How we deal with money reveals what is really already in our hearts. True Christianity is always an issue first of our heart, our heart identity. And he uses this phrase, we have passed out of death into life. John says that. And it's here we see the doctrine of regeneration the biblical teaching that says me and you and all of us, by our inherited guilt, we are objects of God's wrath and heirs to death. But the gospel says that God is a promise-keeping God, and through the work of Jesus Christ, our state towards God and other people is forever changed by His grace. We are made right with God, reconciled to Him on the basis of Jesus' works, not our own. We're transferred from a state of death to a state of life. And this is called regeneration. Regeneration is about being dead and coming to life. And nothing in the Bible is more striking in contrast than, than the illustration of this change in a person's life. We see it all through the Bible The gospel brings these contrasts, lost and found, blind and seeing, slave and free, sick and healed, darkness and light, and death and life. And the person who trusts in Christ has transferred from a state of death into a state of life. 
And the person who doesn't trust in Christ remains in a state of death. Their identity is bound to this state of spiritual death. And John says Cain murdered his brother because his heart was indulged. He had been given opportunity to live out what was in his heart, and what was in his heart was evil. And when a person has transferred from death into life, the same is true when we are given opportunity, though, our heart is indulged, and instead of hatred and jealousy and murder, our heart is indulged into an attitude and action of love and generosity. Our heart reveals, it overflows into what is already there. If we look closely at this passage in its entirety, we see that John talks about four different relationships that we can have with people, four different ways that we can live and levels of relationship with others. One is murder. We see this. Cain gains disposition towards his brother Abel was murder. Another one was hatred. The world hates Christians. A third one is indifference. It's talking about those who are Christians but don't demonstrate generous love towards others. And lastly, we see this relationship that is marked by a love in action. And John writes that only the last one, love in action, is an expression of a person who is truly in touch with the love of God. And experiencing the manifestation of this abiding love of Christ in their life. Only that last one, love in, love in action, is, is, is the appropriate and real expression of a heart that is overflowing with the abiding love of God. And so we see that generosity, this self-sacrificial love, is, can be a, a thermometer for our regenerate heart. And second, he goes on to say that generosity shares in the heroism of Christ. A genuine follower of Jesus increasingly demonstrates a life of self-sacrifice and generosity towards others. Last week, we learned about adoption. Steve Johnson talked about this in, in good detail and, and, and did a great job talking about God's family and being adopted into a family. And his observation that even when you see earthly families that have adopted children miraculously and beautifully, somehow you see that these children, as they grow, they take on the temperaments and personalities and and mannerisms and accents of their family that they were adopted into. They begin to behave like their family. And we are never more like Jesus than when we are loving self-sacrificially like Jesus. And I say that generosity shares in the heroism of Christ because so often when we talk about Christians living self-sacrificially or when we talk about Christians laying down their life, there seems to be this attitude of, of weakness, of giving up. So when Christians are told, lay down your life, we say, you're right, I need, to, I need to give up, I need to yield, I need to back off, I need to just let things happen and not get in the way. And I chose this word heroism because it is, it is not a passive command. It is not a passive action. It is a... It is a purposeful, intentional, courageous thing to lay down your life, to abide in this command. And God calls each of his children, his adopted children, to live day in and day out with a sense of the highest calling that we have to live like Jesus. 
to realize that what we are called to is one of highest calling, of great importance. And if this is true, if we are called to lay down our life like Christ laid down his life, then it's helpful to say, to see, well, how did Christ lay down his life? You're familiar with John 3.16, most likely. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Well, I hope that you are just as familiar with 1 John 3.16. And both these passages, John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16, talk about the sacrificial love and generous love of Jesus. Both talk about the love of Christ as evidence of, by the work of Jesus on the cross. And so Christ's love is three things. It's voluntary. He laid down his life. He, no one makes him do it. He voluntarily lays it down. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I give it down on my own accord. I choose to give it down. And so often we think about gener- being generous as, well, if God wants me to be generous, then he'll provide the money. He'll give me that raise. He will stop the bills from coming. He'll, he'll provide a means for me to be generous. If God really wants me to obey, he will give me the, the soil to plant that seed. And yet we see that God's love and Christ's love demonstrated on the cross is nothing like that. It's actually voluntary. He chooses. There is never a good time to lay down your life. I've heard some say, I can't afford to be generous. There is never a convenient time to be self-sacrificial. No one wakes up and says, today is a good day for my transmission to go out. Today is a good day to get that unexpected bill. Today is a good day to get that check in the mail, that bonus, so that I can give it away. No one wakes up thinking that. It's intentional. It's voluntary. Christ's love is also substitutionary. This is the first, first law, the first spiritual law of self-sacrifice, that we, we know the extent of his love by the extent of his self-sacrifice. Repeatedly, after the resurrection, Jesus presents himself to eyewitnesses, to his disciples, to others, and what does he do? He shows them his wounds. He shows them the holes in his hands and in his feet and the piercing in his side. Here's what we know about the resurrection. We know that Jesus' body is glorified. He is brought into a glorified state of existence. Everything is made right. He is, he is purified. And yet he still has these scars, these wounds, these open wounds. And it's a peculiar thing, isn't it? You may have thought, well, why are his wounds still there, but everything else is healed, everything else is right? Physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, everything is made right. He's glorified. He has the body that we will have in glory with Jesus, and yet his scars remain. And they will remain forever. And when we are reunited with Jesus, we will see those wounds. We'll be able to touch them. We'll be able to examine them. We'll be able to see them. And I imagine that Christ will even show them to us willingly. He'll say, look at my scars. Why? I think it's because the extent of Jesus' love is in his self-sacrifice. It's in his substitutionary work for us, dying in our place. He's saying, look what I did for you. I didn't just do a great thing. I did a great thing for you. I gave myself for you. So every time we think of the love of God, we should be reminded of his self-sacrifice. The proof of his love for us is not in what he conquered, 
but in what he sacrificed, what he gave up for us. And lastly, his love is vicarious. This voluntary, self-sacrificial love is transferred to all who trust in him. It's lived out through us. It's given to us. It's this vicarious. You know what this means, to live vicariously through somebody. We're benefiting from their works. And so real love, the real sacrifice of Christ is, is given to us. He is our substitute. He lived the life that we should have lived, that we failed to live, so and died the death that we deserve so that we could have, by faith, the life that we don't deserve. And the point is, through those three things, the point is, it is so easy to die for somebody. And yet it's very difficult, an entirely different thing, to lay down your life for them. And this is what Jesus wants to get across to the Apostle Peter. You know, one of Jesus, after his resurrection, his last conversation that he had with Peter, Peter saying, Jesus, I will follow you wherever I go. I will lay down my life for you. I will die for you. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. Tend to my sheep. Follow me. It's an entirely different thing to lay down our life for somebody, to sacrifice, than to just die for them. I'll take a bullet for you. I don't want you to take a bullet for me. I want you to love me. I want you to stay alive and give your life for me. That is love. I used to say that to my girlfriends in high school. How do you know you love me? I would take a bullet for you. That is not love. And in a large way, it can be a cowardly act. The courageous thing is to be like Jesus. See, we we say this a lot. I want to be more like you, Jesus. I want to be like you. But do we really know what that means? Do you realize that Jesus, his really only shining moment, his only shining moment in life was his transfiguration and his resurrection? where he was glorified, everything else was miserable from our standards. He is our hero, not because he died, but because he daily laid down his life, submitting himself to the word of God, yielding to the Father's will, leading him to the cross, and on that cross, dying for our sins, finishing the work that God gave him to finish. Do you want to follow, do you want to be like Jesus? then do what he did. Submit to the word of God. Yield to the Father's will. Trust in him. And lay your life down every day. If you've been to a wedding, you're familiar with this phrase. It's been used to describe the life of a husband, that he should live for his wife. It's quoted often in, uh, from Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So husbands are to imitate the heroism of Christ as they lead their families. Not passively, but actively living up to the highest calling of being like Jesus. Dads, do you want to love your kids? There's much more than just working hard to provide, but to lay your life down for your family. Voluntary, substitutionary, vicariously, so that they could benefit from your sacrifice. And I like that in this passage, what we have commonly known about just husbands to their wives, 
now we see that this principle isn't reserved only for husbands, but also for fellow Christian to fellow Christian to lay down your life for other Christians. So there is this call for man, woman, child to share in the heroism of Jesus as he gave his life for us. That we should live sacrificially, generously, not only in talk, but as our passage says, in deed and in truth. And if the love of Jesus abides in us, if, if, if Christ abides in us, we will love like Christ, we will live sacrificially, we'll give generously out of our own desire, not out of compulsion. And this love will really affect people around us. That's what vicarious means. If you're really loving well, people will be changed who trust in you most. You, you will not like everybody you meet. And that's okay. You will not like everybody you meet. You'll, you'll, invariably, invari- you'll, you'll undoubtedly like people, some people much more than other people, and that's okay as well. And you need to realize that not everybody likes you, and that's okay too. But loving generously is a matter of personal, it's not a matter of personal preference, but it's a, a matter of obedience to Christ, to living according to the obedience of Jesus and his word. It moves beyond the superficial of just general talk, of just like, of course I love them, and moves beyond that and into the specific because of the essence of a person's being born and being made in the image of God. We love them. We sacrifice for them and give generously. Love acts. It gives. It expresses itself towards others in a self-sacrificial way, not merely in an emotional or sentimental way. You'll know that you're loving people well when they are changed around you so love specifically that's what verse 17 says i want to direct your attention to that but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him how does god's love abide in him it is highly unlikely that you or me or anybody you know will die literally die literally be in a position where you have to die and give your life for somebody else. That's unlikely. It may happen, but it's unlikely. And the command to love generally sometimes will give us an excuse to not love specifically. If we think of love in a general sense, of course, yeah, we love people. We have to have goodwill for others. We have to be kind to others. And we say, well, I've done it. I've done my job. I've done a good thing. And John wants us to show us that this is a specific thing. You'll see in verse 11 through 24 that we read, many accounts of of a few words that are in the plural. We, us, you, as in plural. It uses these words all throughout this passage. And then in verse 17, there's something, a noticeable change, an intentional change, where John changes from the plural and uses these three words specifically in the singular. When you, if you have the world's gifts and you see your brother, singular, and Resist in your heart to be generous to them. How can you? This whole sentence is about, I want you specifically to think about, not generally as a Christian and as a church, but specifically how you are taking upon yourself to be aware of and engaged in meeting the needs of others around you. It's a call to personal evaluation of what we have been blessed with in our lives and being good stewards of what we've been blessed with and using that as an act of worship and praise to bless others who need it. Think about that for you, your life. 
We need to think about that collectively, of course, as a church. And we need to think about that individually in our own lives. I'll tell you a story about three people. Three people's names were everybody, somebody, and nobody. Everybody thought somebody would do it, and nobody did. Because we see these needs in a general sense, and we don't take it to a personal sense, that God is actually calling me, commanding me, to personally engage, evaluate my life, my goods, what I have, and how I can use them as a worshipful blessing to others. And it's not describing the person that has a lot. It's not describing a wealthy person. It's describing the world's goods or things that we just live on, our resources, our, our food, our clothing, our resources, our possessions, our talents, our gifts, our abilities, all of these things, the things that we have, the average things. And we have more than what we need. And he says, don't close your heart. So this is like giving without recourse. This is giving without expecting in return. Deuteronomy chapter 15 says, be careful not to harbor any wicked thought. The wicked thought being the seventh year, the year of canceling debts is near. You see, in the Jewish culture, every seven years, all, there was the year of Jubilee. And the debts of people, the, the, lenders, uh, the lenders would give, uh, give to people and there would be a debt there would be an, uh, something that was owed. And every seventh year, all of those debts were canceled. So I think that's something ambitious to do in like year one, year two, year three. But can you imagine like year six, day 364, someone comes up to you wanting something, and you know that tomorrow you're going to have to cancel that debt? Are you going to be more hesitant to give generously? Yes, Probably. And what God's word is saying, don't think like that. Don't, do not close your heart. We are to be generous in giving to others. And our generosity is to be practical, without recourse. I'm one of seven kids, and so I didn't learn generosity growing up. I really didn't. I didn't learn generosity until I married my wife. Everything that I had I had to hoard. I had to keep close because it could either be stolen, broken, or eaten. <laughs> Maybe you grew up in a home like that. So everything, if it was mine, I wrote my name on it, and I did not share it with anybody. Love in action demonstrates the reality of Christian faith. And there's something great that happens when we do this, apart from having confidence of the abiding love in our, in our life. And that's the last thing that John gets to, is that generosity gives us confidence for answered prayers. Look at verse 19, and we'll skip to 21. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. And look at 21. Beloved, our heart does not condemn us. If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So if you want your prayers to be answered, our ushers are going to pass around the offering plate. See, for a minute there, you probably thought I was serious, right? If this passage isn't saying that, because I can understand that this is what it can sound like. If you want God to be good to you, if you want God to answer your prayers, then give financially to the church, be generous to people around you, and then you can know that your prayers will be answered. That is a great abuse, I think, I know of this passage, and it's not what it means. But if it doesn't mean that, if it's not saying that, what is this saying? It is pointing to a mark, a true mark of our assurance 
that God's love abides in us. Obeying God's commands is the, is the key to a clear conscience. Our conscience can act like the, the indicator lights on our dash, on our car. Our conscience is that, that presence, that gift that God has given us to know right from wrong. It's an indicator that tells us when something is wrong. If our engine is running hot, if their tire is too low, if we're getting low on gas, when the emergency brake has been on and we've been driving all around town with it on, our indicator light shows us that something is off, something is not working. When I first got my license, I had a car and the indicator's lights kept coming on. And so I did it with all my energy. Instead of trying to get those things fixed, I tried to find out where the fuse box was. And I found it, and I just took out the fuses. And the lights went off. And I say, presto, no more problems. And that could be very dangerous. And our conscience acts as that warning, as that indicator. This phrasing is a little difficult to decipher, but here's what I think is going on. Anytime we are given a command from God, there tends to be this little discussion that goes on in our mind, in our hearts in the deepest part of us, somewhere along the lines of, are we really going to listen to what God has told me to do? Anytime, throughout your day, whether it's at church, whether it's at work, whether you're driving in your car, and you feel your conscience is talking to you saying, no, not wise, not smart, you know better. Few of us will just say, okay, that's it. Whatever you say, I'm going to do. Few of us respond in obedience with that kind of energy. Most of us, if not all of us, will have some conversation with our hearts and our minds as we're we're talking through it, right? We deliberate. We weigh the pros and cons. And the order goes, I think, a little like this. God gives a command. We hear a command through some means, through his word, through our conscience, through somebody else, a friend. We deliberate. That's step number two. And step number three is we respond in a certain way, whether obedient or disobedient. Those are the only two You realize that, right? Those are the only two options as a response to what God has said, obedience or disobedience. And so here's something that happens. Step one, the command for sacrificial and generous giving and love for one another is commanded. God commands us to be generous and sacrificially love others. We know someone is in need, and we feel a leading in our heart to help that person. That's step one. Step two goes a little like this. Thoughts start to come into our hearts. We start thinking about that, if we really need to do it, if God's really talking to us. And we convince ourselves that we have good reason to not obey that command. Well, I've been saving up for that new iPad. And the iPad will really help me be more organized in life. And God wants me to be real organized. And so when you think about it, it would be a sin to not get it. I'm not beating up on iPads. I have one, and and they're great. But anything, think about anything that we do that with. We start to reason ourselves out of what God has called us to do. And then the step number three is we conclude that love can be maintained without obeying God. We conclude in whatever action it is that we can still be the person God's called us to be without doing what he said. And verse 20 has a very sobering tag at the end of the verse. And he says, God knows everything. These conversations that we have with ourselves, God is fully aware. He knows what we're doing. He knows what we're saying. We cannot hide. He He is not tricked. 
And this passage insists that this type of thinking must be abandoned completely. This type of thinking with ourselves, deliberating over God's commands, must be abandoned. The heart must be preached to. It must be reasoned with. To obey the commands of God gives evidence that his love abides in us. The true Christian becomes increasingly self-persuasive. So we see the command of God, and these thoughts come into our hearts, and we think, do I really need to do that? Is he really calling me to do that? And step number three, we always come to that conclusion of, no, but I love God, and he loves me, and I must obey him even though I don't understand. We reason with ourselves. We struggle with those realities. We painfully work through that process. And at the end of the day, we choose to yield to the will and love of Christ. And John says, when we do that, nothing is hindering our prayers. Because when we are motivated in our prayers by the love of God, to obey his word and yield to his will, our prayers will always line up with his will for us and, and, and our prayers will be answered. Even when we don't know exactly what we're praying for. See, God knows the perspective. Even though we pray for one thing, he knows the perspective from which we pray. Like his little children that pray and ask for things that are confusing. He understands our hearts. He knows our desire. He knows if there is evil or if there is his love in our hearts. God understands our prayers from our perspective. And it's a good thing because sometimes we don't know what we want. And sometimes when we pray, God doesn't give us what we want because it's not good. He's a generous God. He loves us. And true contentment, as John is talking here, he's, he's true contentment is found in listening to what God says and doing what he says. Obeying his commands, the only source of true contentment. You know what contentment is? Being okay with what you have. Being okay with what is going on. The only way we can lay down our head, Ben Franklin says, a a clear conscience is a continual Christmas. And I love that phrase because that's what it feels like. You know how good it feels to lay down your head at night and say, okay. The only way we convince ourselves that we are okay is if we are obeying God's commands. When we live in obedience to God's word and the will of God, our prayers will be the reflection of his will, and thus we will be, it will be readily answered. He closes here in his point bringing it all to close in verse 23 to 24. And this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. The point is not our stuff. The point of this passage is not our stuff, and John makes that very clear. He cares about you. He cares about your heart. And he is wise, and he is a loving father, and he knows how to give loving instruction to his children. He is showing us how knowing and doing are connected, 
knowing his word and his will and being obedient to his word and his will are an expression that his spirit lives in us. And when we are obeying his commands and we have that, we have that witness of his spirit in us, we can have confidence that his love abides. We can have confidence that we could come to him and pray and our prayers will be answered. We can be content with what we have and how we give. And the best thing we could do with all that we have, the worldly goods, the best thing we could do is be generous. God has commanded us. God has not just thought it's a good idea if you have a lot of it. It is not only for those that are saying, I have a little extra, what should I do with it? It is for every person who calls themselves a follower of Christ to look at what he has said, to be obedient to it. And so in light of this passage, as an application, as a reflection, how is God speaking to you today? I want you to think about that personally. What spiritual adjustments in your life need to be made today, tomorrow? What do you need to do? Would people say that you're a generous person? Would people say you love like this? If so, well done. <laughs> Great job. Thank you. If, people, if you are a generous person, thank God for you. Not you thank God for yourself. We thank God for you. But keep watch on your heart because you can become prideful. You can say, see, I'm doing what God says. Because doing what God says never gets us to heaven. Be cheerful in your giving. Be cheerful in your worship. And if you are a person that is very cheerful and generous in your giving, what is God teaching you today that you learned? For others, evaluate your money habits. Evaluate how you give. Evaluate how you're generous with what you have. Being generous doesn't mean that you don't have a plan. You don't want to be foolish. You, you sit down and you actually think, what has God given me and how can I be a good steward of what he's given to me? How much do I purposely set aside to be generous to people who are in need? How much do I give to the kingdom of God, to the church, to other Christian work, to the advancement of the gospel in our world? Am I aware of personal needs of people in my life? My neighbors, my friends, my family? Do I even know? Do I ask them? Do I sense that they're struggling? How can I maybe help? Think about your assets, your, your income, your non-liquid assets, your car, your home, your skills and abilities, your talents. Thinking about all of those things, how can I be generous? Do you need to adjust your giving, your generous, self-sacrificial worship through giving in light of what you've learned? Maybe not. Maybe you do. Get a budget. Oh, this is extremely practical today. Yeah. God's word is. We cannot be generous unless we purposely be generous. When we say, I can't afford to be generous, well, of course you can't. You don't have a plan to be generous. When you say yes to one thing, when you say, yes, I'm going to obey this command, I'm going to be generous, I'm going to look out for opportunities to bless others, you have to say no to other things. When you say yes to some things, you say no to others. Sacrificial giving is an act of love for God, his church, and his people. 
Dave Ramsey says something, I was listening to a lot of stuff he says, maybe you know him, he's got some great stuff. And actually there's three videos that have been on our website for a year now, since last July, and I'll actually bump them up to, to this week so that when you go on our media page and you look at our sermons, you'll be able to see three videos that talk about this, this mindset and heart set around what we have. And they're just three 30-minute videos, they're really awesome. Even if you are very responsible, you have a plan, they're still very helpful. Go and watch those. He says, we're often not generous because we're focused on buying stuff we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. What, is your, what does your budget reflect? What does your life reflect? What do your worldly goods reflect about what is in your heart? And then lastly, what have you learned about Christ this morning? What have you learned about his giving? What needs to be adjusted in your own life and in your heart? His love is, is voluntary to you. He did not do it because he had to. He did not do it because he was made to. He lays down his life for us because he loves us. He is a generous God. Do you realize he's generous to you? He does so sacrificially, substitutionarily. He gives himself in our place. And vicariously, it changes us. How have you been changed by the love of God? What blessings have you received because of the love of God? He changes us to be like him. Let's pray. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com.